I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17 uh, in the uh, complete Jewish Bible. Now a great sign was seen in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, under her feet the moon, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and about to give birth, and she screamed in the agony of labor. Another sign was seen in heaven. There was a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven royal crowns. Its tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth. It stood in front of the woman about to give birth so that it might devour the child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, the one who will rule all the nations with a staff of iron. But her child was snatched up to God and his throne, and she fled into the desert, <clears throat> where she has a place prepared by God so that she can be taken care of for 1260 days. Next, there was a battle in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But it was not strong enough to win, so that there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent also known as the devil and Satan, the adversary, the deceiver of the whole world. He was hurled down to the earth, and his angels were hurled down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come God's victory, power, and kingship and the authority of his Messiah, because the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before God, has been thrown out. They defeated him because of the Lamb's blood and because of the message of their witness. Even when facing death, they did not cling to life. Therefore rejoice, heaven, and you who live there. But woe to you, land and sea, for the adversary has come down to you, and he is very angry because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to the earth, he went in pursuit of the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly to her place in the desert, where she is taken care of for a season and two seasons and half a season, away from the serpent's presence. The serpent spewed water like a river out of his mouth after the woman in order to sweep her away in the flood. But the land came to rescue her. It opened its mouth and swallowed up the river which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. The dragon was infuriated over the woman and went off to fight the rest of her children, those who obey God's commands and bear witness to Yeshua. Thank you, Renee. You know, if you've been part of the Messianic Jewish movement, you'll remember that a uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek approach to our festivals, some that are explicitly mentioned um, in Scripture, and some of which have been added by tradition afterwards, the basic approach is they try to kill us, God wouldn't let them, now let's eat. And that uh, is more or less applicable to um, so many of our holidays. Uh, and if, we, if Israel seems to be somewhat paranoid, that's because we have a good reason, because they've been after us. But uh, Tisha B'Av is, um, is not one of celebration. Um, as has been mentioned earlier, Tisha B'Av, by the way, means the ninth of Av. Av is the eleventh lunar or Jewish uh, uh, month of the calendar. And it's been a day that's been set aside um, for corporate mourning. And, and we do a very limited form of that here at the Yeshua Tzion. Um, because if you have been called by God to be part of our community, part of the heart connection that we believe you need to have, as all of us, 
is an understanding of the pain of the nation of Israel. Because without understanding that, that we don't really come to appreciate the awesome, sovereign, redemptive plans that God has in mind to restore Israel. You have to understand what has taken place in order to recognize the fact that God wants to come and bring about restoration and salvation. Some of the events, and by the way, um, you can look it up, on in, Google it on the internet. We have a very short blip uh, on the, on the uh, inside of the back of the bulletin. But just to give you a few of the um, events that did happen and some that uh, tradition lumped together on Tisha B'Av, um, on that day, the uh, nation of Israel accepted and believed the report of the ten spies, the evil report, and because of that, uh, were forbidden to enter the promised land. The first and second temples were destroyed on that day. The Bar Kokhva rebellion in 135 was destroyed by the Romans. Jerusalem was totally razed to the ground and salted and and there was a rebuilding and it was called Elia Capitolina which was in honor of Zeus or Jupiter then there are all kinds of other events such as in 1492 the Jewish community of Spain was expelled and given the great option of either converting to Christianity, leaving or dying. And uh, I can go on and on and on, and I'm really not, believe it or not, I'm really not interested in depressing you. Um, and if you are familiar with Jewish history, um, it's not something you want to take to bed and read because you will wake up with nightmares. Difficult events, difficult story, difficult history that has really not been made known to the believing, to the evangelical community, but, the, but by the grace of God, it's beginning to change. Um, we at Denver Seminary are presenting the fuller version of what took place in church history, especially in regards to how it's impacted the Jewish people. And for us, individually and corporately as a, as a mishpacha, as a congregation, Tisha B'Av is, is, provides such a wonderful model, yes, a wonderful model, of how we deal with the difficulties and stresses and failures and pain of life in a way that is godly, in a way that is biblical, so that we emerge, instead of being crushed to powder, we emerge strengthened. So with that in mind, I want to pause for a minute and just ask that the Lord would tune our ears and give us the eyes to see what He has in mind for each one of us. Thank you, Lord God, for Your Word. Thank you, Lord God, for how you provide instructions, Torah, that cover the entire range of our life, from the good to the difficult, from the joys to the sorrows. And in all circumstances, Lord, we want to learn to give you the honor and glory. And we want, Lord God, to grow into maturity in you and become strong men and women of God. So we pray, Lord God, that as we look into your word, we pray, Lord God, that you'll give us eyes of understanding what your word is saying to us, and specifically, Lord, the application that you have for each one of us to take and put into practice. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. You know, I, I, uh, 
I imagine that, that probably most of us have read through portions of Revelation or have heard teachings of one kind or another. Um, and so in, in one Shabbat, I don't presume to give you an authoritative word about anything and everything in Revelation. But rather, I want to address how Revelation provides a, a wonderful filter for us through which we can see, through which we can gain a perspective on Tisha B'Av and what happened, the calamities that happened to the nation of Israel, Israel's ongoing struggles, and then our own individual and corporate struggles as a mishpacha. Part of the challenge for us is when we hear and read Revelation, we often been encouraged to dive into prophetic charts. And so if you have prophetic charts on the brain, let me encourage you to take those prophetic charts and set them aside for now. Because Revelation really is not about prophetic charts. And by the way, there are a couple of ditches that people dive into in looking at Revelation. One is the approach that says, you know, it's all confusing. It's, a, it's apocalyptic literature. Uh, it's symbolic. You know, it, it's, it's bizarre. And so therefore, we're going to look to extract spiritual principles and not worry at all about the uh, the time and the specific literary uh, literal details. That's one ditch. I believe that the other ditch are the folks that, uh, with all due respect to some of the wonderful scholars in that department, I still feel it's a ditch, who bring a somewhat of an OCD approach, who want to take every single detail and try to find uh, meaning, significance in some kind of a cosmic master plan of how everything fits literally and temporally. In other words, such and such a detail fits here, and then we go from here to here to here to here. Um, and if you take that approach, I'm not going to quibble with you. I just feel it's a bit of a an extreme position because it really misses the point of what Revelation is about. Revelation, folks, is a book of worship. Did you see that? As you read Revelation, every so often you see all this whacked out bizarre stuff here on the earth uh, with the anti-Messiah and, and the false prophet and people cursing God and fire raining and people dying and so on and so forth. It's bizarre stuff. And then every so often John looks up and you know he's kind of in, in this twilight zone where he is looking both up and down his gaze is taking up to heaven and angels and, and uh, uh, elders and everybody and their mothers dancing before the throne and worshiping God and singing loudly. And so as Revelation elsewhere in Scripture tells us, he who has ears, let him hear. That's really what the book is about. Bit of background about Revelation and John he is writing at a time of great persecution over much of the Roman Empire. And you know that he is somewhere on the, on the island of Alcatraz. <laughs> Not quite, but Patmos, a stony island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And, um, and he is writing from a pastoral, a shepherding perspective where he wants to say to people, look, Caesar is ruling and it's oppressive rule, but you have to understand, A, that God is in control, and B, what the end of the book is like. That there's hope. First of all, there's hope. Second of all, God is irresistibly at work on behalf of his people. Even at times that seem to be totally crazy and out of control. And thirdly, as was mentioned earlier, a wonderful word that our suffering is not wasted. 
That's where we really, really, really get into trouble. We suffer and we're convinced that God doesn't know anything about it or God has punished us or that the period of time is something we want to get through as quickly as possible and then do an erase, push an erase button and erase that period. Missing God's larger and sovereign and gracious and redemptive plans and purposes during those difficult times. We sang earlier, Refiner's Fire, and if we are not willing to not just endure, but cooperate with God's refining process, folks, we're going to go around our life and have this 800-pound gorilla, in other words, full of junk that we've carried from place to place, instead of saying, Lord, would you please come and would you please free me of this baggage? Done with it. I don't want to carry it. So that's part of the process. And as we look at passages in Scripture, such as Revelation, we don't want to gloss over what Scripture has to say to us. We don't want to put on a happy face as believers often do when we go through times of of mourning. By the way, I have difficult time when I go to funerals of believers sometimes who present it as a going home party. And yes, there's joy in the fact that someone is going to be with the Lord. However, reality is that when someone passes that we love, we mourn. Paul tells us, not in in Revelation 4, that we should not grieve as those who have no hope, but we grieve. Yeshua wept, folks. And this is part, an ongoing part of life. If we cannot engage in that, in the grieving, we cannot engage truly in rejoicing. So the book of Revelation is designed to give us a perspective on suffering, difficulties. And Revelation 12 is one of those challenging passages. And I'm sure if you've studied Revelation, you've probably seen uh, a multitude of different opinions. Again, we don't want to take the OCD approach that says every detail has to fit, or on the other hand, say the whatever, everything is symbolic. But rather, we understand the fact that Scripture, throughout the Word of God from Genesis on, gives us interpretive cues. In other words, it gives us little clues of how to interpret prophetic passages. You may know, and and I've heard different estimates for that, but you may know that Revelation has at least 550 references to the Tanakh, to the Old Testament. No great shock. John grew in a synagogue. What did he hear every Shabbat? The Torah was open and read. The prophets were open and read. He read read and heard that day after day after day. So that colored his thinking and his perspective, which, by the way, I hope increasingly becomes more and more part of who we are, that our mindset is colored and shaped by the Word of God. So there are interpretive cues. The other piece that I wanted to point out right at the beginning is I'm convinced that prophetic passages are given to us where the prophet looks through a telescope. Now, the word telescope is not in the Bible. But I'm convinced that that's the the way prophetic passages are given where we see them all, but we really are not sure how they fit in, in a timeline. And so being good Western American thinkers, we want to make sure that everything flows in a linear, on a linear direction and put everything sequentially. Well, I have news for you. God and his 
omniscient in his all wisdom doesn't seem to, to be too interested in cooperating with our desire for linearity. So um, there are some things that we can be very clear, very emphatic about, and some things that we have to say, well, this is part of question number 462 when we see Yeshua. It's okay. It's okay to admit the fact that we don't know. If it is something from God, it's going to be a mystery, which means that we understand this much, and then God un- understands this much. There's some things that are very clear. We see a, a uh, pattern uh, in the past. We see something about the present, and we see a whole bunch about the future. So there are a couple of things that are very clear. First of all, we see this wondrous sign of, of a woman John sees this woman, and um, she is pregnant, and she cries out, cries out in pain as she is about to give birth. By the way, first-century Judaism, um, and later, talked about the period of struggle that would come before the coming of Messiah it was called Chevlei Mashiach, the birth pangs of Messiah. So this is not something strange for John. Um, Clothed with the sun and the moon and a crown of 12 stars. Well, if you go back to Joseph's dream, the second dream, when he shared that with his brothers and father, you see exactly very great similarities. So again... What is John drawing our attention? He's drawing our attention to earlier passages in Scripture. Then she's going to give birth to one who will rule with a rod of iron. Who can that refer to? Israel and Yeshua, obviously. The phrase rod of, uh, rule, rule with a rod of iron comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. And so John is speaking about someone who we know, this is clear, is referring to the nation of Israel. And there's a part that's in the past when, when Miriam, when Mary gave birth to, to Yeshua. Then he's speaking about the dragon. Again, that is no-brainer. Uh, because in verse 9, he is identified as the ancient serpent which takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent in the garden is described also in verse 9 as Satan, which means adversary, taking us back to Job chapter 1 and 2 and Zechariah. And by the way, let me point out the fact that Scripture describes this evil being as Satan doesn't mean that there's a battle Uh, to the death between the forces of good and forces of evil. We as believers often operate from the perspective that that there is this major battle going on and we're not quite sure who's going to win. I hope as we're listening to this, you have a deep conviction that God is going to win. Because, unlike God, Satan is not all-powerful, all-knowing, and every-present. In other words, he doesn't know everything that's going on. He is not everywhere, and he doesn't have all the power to do everything that God does. Can you say amen to that? He is described as the devil, coming from Greek word diabolos, which means a deceiver. Accuser. And it speaks about him as the dragon. And the imagery is bizarre. I mean, the picture is bizarre, okay? Um, Apocalyptic. He sweeps a third of the stars out of the skies and he flings them to the earth. This is clearly um, 
a description of the fact that at some point Satan was able to recruit a third of the angelic beings to follow him and to serve him as, as his messengers, the demons. Apparently something that took place way, way, way in the past. So, again, something very emphatic. And we also see that, that this being, Satan, the devil, is going after the woman in a couple of different points. One, to try and snatch her son. And then in the second time, later in the chapter, he doesn't give up, but he wants to sweep her away with a current, a torrent of rushing water. When you step back, you realize that this is making a very strong and very clear statement, and that is that Satan is opposed to the nation of Israel, and that he hates Israel, and that he's been behind all the different attempts to destroy Israel, and he continues to incite the enemies of Israel with blind and fanatical hatred. Folks, w when you see the propaganda that's coming out of some of the Arab capitals, it is very much reminiscent of what came out of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. It makes absolutely not a particle of sense because it, it doesn't seem to relate rationally and logically as someone who who is opposed or even hates somebody else, the hatred is, is totally irrational, obviously demon-possessed. And, and even, even against their own personal and self-interest. You know, if the, if the Arab nations who hate us, who hate Israel, would stop, they would realize that it is to their benefit to learn to make peace with Israel because they would get so much good out of it. You know, just small examples that Palestinian and Syrian and sometimes Egyptian uh, wounded, wounded come to Israel's hospital to get some of the best care in the world. And there can be commerce and all kinds of good things. And no, there's a desire to eradicate Israel and it's clearly driven by Satan and this is very spooky folks and on some level we want to basically bury our head in the sand and say um, okay well I love the Lord he's going to take care of me I'm not interested in and the powers of darkness, which is true to a point. But reality is for us that the moment you and I sign on the dotted line and, and embrace Yeshua as our Messiah, we entered into a battle. Because we were heading this way, and the world around us is heading this way, and the world around us is driven and controlled and manipulated but by the Satan. There's a battle. And we see a battle that's presented here, and I believe this is still uh, in the future, and I suppose you can want to arm wrestle about this, but in verse 7 to 9, we see a, a battle in heaven where Mike Angel, Michael, the archangel, fights with the dragon, and uh, the dragon his angels fight back and he loses and he and, and his demons are pitched out of heaven. Now there's several things that are pretty spooky about this. We consider and we know that heaven is God's place. That's where God hangs out. That's when you and I die. That's where we're going to be, right? Amen. Right? You're not sure. I don't know about you. I am looking forward to being with the Lord. The older I get, the sweeter the prospect becomes. So what is Satan doing up there in heaven? 
And by the way, you may know that first century Judaism, there was the notion that there were seven heavens, that God's throne was above the seventh heaven. And Paul, for example, speaks about how he was caught into the third heaven. So you can fry your circuits um, and try to speculate on, on which heaven we're talking about, whether we're talking about right up there the sixth or, or the fifth or whatever. Scripture doesn't tell us. So if you want, you can write two or three commentaries on that. But um, what we do find in Scripture that somehow Satan has entryway into heaven. We see that in the Tanakh with Job. Uh, he comes before God. We see that in Zechariah. The angels of God are there and Satan's there. We see that in Revelation. And I believe that this is part of the present history. And I say that because, for example, in, in Ephesians 6, Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power, everything that is dark, invisible, and in heavenly places. Again, you can fry your circuits, or you can say, God, I don't understand, but somehow that is what the word is saying. There are spiritual battles, you know, and, and we lose sight of that because we tend to want to engage on a visible plane. And part of that, folks, is that often we try to duke it out with each other because we don't understand that what's really going on are spiritual battles. And Scripture says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. If you find yourself in, in a war with someone else, with a brother or sister, you're fighting the wrong fight. Because our fight is with spiritual and invisible beings, not with people we can see, who may be driven and manipulated by Satan, just like you and I can, at different times, be manipulated by, by darkness. Again, there, there is so much that we don't know, don't understand. But what Scripture tells us, at some point, Satan and his bunch will be thrown out of heaven. And by the way, in the mind of God, in God's reality, this has already happened. Remember that here we live in time, and God is outside of time. For him, it's a done deal. Yeshua made, made the following statement. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now is the prince of the world will be driven out. And however Yeshua put it initially in, in Hebrew or, or Aramaic, in, in Greek, it's very strong literally means that he's going to be driven out, outside, really kicked out. And so we look forward to that because we get tired of a world in which reality is becoming more and more godless. By the way, uh, when Joe and I were in Phoenix, we heard that the Supreme Court overturned DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, that now our national standard for marriage is no longer one man for one woman. That was a heavy, heavy message. And on some level made us feel like we're being painted into a corner until we realized that this is actually time to take heart why? Because we see in Scripture the pattern of what's going to happen in the world that as we move closer and closer towards the Lord's return, things will get more and more confused and more and more defiled. There'll be doctrines of demons and, and so on and so forth. We see that in the book of Revelation. So we know that as distressing it as it is, God is still at work 
God is in control and he will work his plan through what seems to be totally chaos and, and insanity. And this is what we find in, in this chapter. This is what we find in, in, in this chapter in verse 10. In the midst of this picture, we see the, the following phrase, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God, the authority of Messiah have come. By the way, when you see the phrase, a loud voice in the book of Revelation, about half the time it has to do with an expression of worship with excitement. Let me just read to you a couple of examples. In a loud voice, and that's zillions of angels around the throne, they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and health, etc. Chapter 7, and they, which was a great multitude, cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on a throne. Chapter 17, uh, 14, he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Chapter 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. So, here clearly the proper response is not just to say, yay, God, because you've kicked out the bums. But it's part of the ongoing pattern in the book of Revelation where regardless of what happens, you stop and you worship God. Sanity saver, folks. Sanity saver. You can either be consumed with the facts on the ground or the difficulties with the things that stress you out, which we all do, or you can pause and say, God, I want to worship you. I don't understand all this other stuff, but I want to worship you. It's a major part of how the believers are called upon to respond. It reminds us that we have the victory. Satan is racing, knowing that his time is near, but we run with Nike. <laughs> and I don't mean the shoes. Nike comes from a Greek word which means to be victorious or to overcome. In fact, John, both here, and by the way, I'm running a bit late, so please bear with me. John here and also in his first epistle makes it real clear that if you are a believer, you overcome. Let me say that again. This is not designed to lay a guilt trip on you or to discourage you, but that's reality. The proof that we are children of God is demonstrated through our learning to persevere and overcome. 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome even our faith. Let me say that again. Everyone who is born of God, that's you and I, if you're a follower of Yeshua, overcomes the world. That's reality. And furthermore, we are commanded and expected to overcome. Think about that. It's not what I'm saying. It's what the good book says. Revelation and all the letters to the congregations, chapters 2 and 3, this phrase, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, which means that every single type of believer in every type of a congregation is expected to be an overcomer. Just read through those chapters let me just rattle through a couple of verses. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. To him who overcomes, or he who overcomes, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. 
but will acknowledge his name before my father in, in angels and his angels. Chapter 3, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. You say, that's, that's kind of spooky. Who am I? You know, to sit on the throne with Yeshua. And, and then, if we're wanting to weasel out of that, the word of God makes it even more emphatic at the, at the end of the book. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God and he will be my son or daughter. Are you God's son or God's daughter? Makes a very strong correlation that if we're children of God, we will overcome. And I don't mean that just in a civil rights kind of a sense. In a global sense. We will learn to persevere in our love relationship with the Lord. Part of the overcoming is that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the te our testimony. I often hear believers using a phrase in a somewhat of formulaic sense, I plead the blood of Yeshua over this, over that, over the other when they're particularly stressed and, and, and feel the hot breath of Satan upon them. And there's room for that, but that really doesn't get what it, what it means to overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Satan is the accuser, and he has plenty of evidence to bring before God's, God's bar as the judge. There's enough evidence there to hang us. You know, if, if the, video, the videos in our brain were to be played out before God, I hate to think what would happen. Let me rephrase that. He already knows. It will put us in a very unflattering light, but the truth is, that is reality. And we accept it. We can't fix it. But we also recognize that just as there is a prosecutor, there's a counsel for the defendant. That's us. And Yeshua intervenes and says, yes, there is schmutz on Chaim. But I came and died for him. And we learn to embrace that, we learn to receive that, we learn to live by it, and we learn to say, okay, God, I know I have stuff. You died for me, and you're able to cleanse me, and I want that. Come and cleanse me. And so, that's a major way that we overcome. We also overcome because we know that the judge loves us to pieces. That's not normally what you expect to see in a court. But the judge loves us to pieces in the sense we're in cahoots with him, we're working with him, and he wants the best for us. And yes, he knows that our sin is ugly. But we're not going to walk around with an 800-pound gorilla on our back saying, you know, I need to fix myself. I need to rid myself of all this stuff. I need to, ex to engage in this self-examination. Which is absolutely foolish, folks. The job of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to point things out to us. And to show us our stuff, it's our job to say, okay, God, I agree with you. I don't want it. Take it away. Clean me. Clean me up so that you can fill me more and more. Get rid of the junk so there's more room to be filled. You say amen to that. The word of their testimony is the fact that that's what we are about. We're committed 
to having more and more of God in our life, committed to doing the Father's will. And the more of that we do, the less and less room we have for Satan to come in and grab us. You know, the picture that comes to mind is a couple of wrestlers, you know, like Roman wrestlers, the Olympics. They would uh, walk, they they would move around trying to find ways to, to get a hold on the other in order to bring them down. That's what Satan tries to do with us. And the more we are covered and cleansed, we're protected, and there's less and less entryways. And the model for us is Yeshua. Yeshua said, the prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold in me. He has no place where he can grab me and take me down. So part of the challenge for us is to come before God and say, Lord, what are the areas that are not under your control? Because the areas that are not under your control are vulnerable to Satan coming and grabbing us and doing all kinds of mayhem. And each of us knows exactly what that looks like. I'm not going to go through the dirty dozen or the nasty five or the list of big bad sins. You know, the Lord knows, each of us knows the areas that are intractable that we wrestle with, we fuss with, and haven't yet learned how to give God control. And scripture says that Yeshua intercedes for us and because of that he is able to redeem fully and completely. Which means that there is no sin, no junk that he is not capable of addressing as we learn to welcome him and give him control. You say amen to that. So as we conclude, I just want to mentioned several things you know we part of the message of Tisha B'Av is that it reminds us that none of us live a life that has perpetual victory and that we need a godly model of how to handle the difficulties and defeats and disappointments We cannot embrace the lie that we will have perpetual victory, nor will we embrace the lie that our sufferings and our defeats are beyond God's power to redeem, that He uses them and He weaves them into the tapestry of our life. those difficult times remind us that yes there's the involvement of Satan and evil powers to try and derail us but victory is not only possible victory is expected folks God demands his people to learn how to persevere and how to overcome. And, and if this flies over your head at Mach 15, let me encourage you as we take time in just a moment or so to stand before the Lord and, and to worship Him and, and to pray together and, and have prayer up here. Let me encourage you then to wrestle with the Lord and say, Lord, yes. Victory is possible and you want to teach me how to overcome. Cry out to God that he'll give you a mind and a heart of courage to see that and to embrace it. 
Again, Satan is at work racing. But we are running with Nike. We are running with God's victory. Time is short. And God has much work for you and I to do. Let's press forward. And let's pray. Please stand. After our time of prayer, we will conclude with the Kiddush, the blessing over the wine and the challah. We bless your name, Lord God, because there's nothing hidden from you. You're all-knowing. You know us from top to bottom, side to side. You know our thoughts before we even think them. You know the areas where we're defiled, the areas, Lord, where we struggle. The areas, Lord, where we have not yet learned to invite you into. The areas, Lord, in our life that Satan is able to tweak us and sometimes oppress us. And Lord, we embrace and stand on the truth of your word that you expect us to be victorious. That you expect us to learn to be overcomers. And Lord, we want to receive that. We want that truth of your word to filter into every part of our being, to every pore in, in our body, Lord. We want to receive that. We want to live by it, Lord God. We desire, Lord, to learn to walk in victory. Father God, I pray for each of us that you give us those eyes of faith to see not only what is possible, but Lord God, what you want to do in our life. Give us the courage, Lord God, to embrace the truth of your word and not to live by the lies of the moment, Lord. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.